Chapter Seven of the Black Fawn by James Arthur Kelgard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. From the school bus, the blacktop road looked to Bud like a frozen black river between the banks of snow cast aside by the snowplow, and he pretended that the poles indicating culverts were channel markers. The Barston farm buildings to the left, and a hundred and fifty yards from the highway, seemed to him an island in the sea of snow, and the Barston's orchard looked like a great mass of seaweed. Soon he tired of daydreaming and stared stonily out of the window. When Christmas had still been weeks away, he had been able to tell himself that it might never come. But now that only a few days remained before Christmas, there was no more hope. This was the last trip the school bus would be making until after New Year's, for the Christmas vacation was beginning, and in just three days Graham and Gramps' children and grandchildren would arrive, and there would be no place for an outsider. It would have been far better, he thought bleakly, if he had never come to Bennett's farm, and probably it would be better if he left now. But although Bud's imagination could whisk him anywhere at all, the harsh realities of life as he had lived it sobered him. He could dream of the French Foreign Legion, the carefree existence of a cowboy, the adventurous career of a seaman, or the unhampered life of a trapper in the Arctic North. But he knew in his heart his dreams would never come true. Twelve-year-old boys had run away from the orphanage, but none had stayed away for more than three days before they had returned of their own accord or had been brought back by the police. A youngster traveling alone without resources had less than one chance in a thousand of remaining undetected, and Bud knew it. Besides, he was stubborn and unwilling to back away from any situation. He would face the assembled Bennets and do the best he could. In one way or another, he had faced giants before. To take his mind away from the ordeal ahead of him, Bud turned back to the hunt for old Yellowfoot and the day Gramps had been stricken in the kitchen. He had been frightened then, too, but not with the stark fear he had known the day he and Gramps had hunted for grouse and Gramps had become ill while they were in the woods. That day Bud had been alone, but now there was Gram. Things might still go wrong now, but not altogether wrong if she was there. He remembered how Gram had walked calmly over to Gramps as soon as he was stricken and said quietly, "'You're tired, Delbert. Now you just sit right there and take it easy.' Then she had gone to the telephone and, after she had spoken to Dr. Beardsley, returned to sit beside Gramps. Only her eyes had shown the torment she was enduring. Bud had hovered in the background, not knowing what to do, but ready to do anything. Gramps raised his head again, and there was that terrible convulsive cough, but afterward he breathed more easily. 
the blue color that had invaded his face began to fade. He started to sweat, and Graham wiped his face gently. "'Gosh, blame nonsense!' Gramps gasped. "'Of course,' Graham said. "'That's just what it is. You sit there, anyway.' "'Why?' "'Maybe because I like your company, and you have been gone all day.' Only later had it occurred to Bud that she was deliberately resorting to subterfuge to make him sit still until Dr. Beardsley arrived. Gramps would never have accepted a doctor otherwise. As it was, he gave an outraged growl when Dr. Beardsley finally came. "'What the blazes do you want?' Gramps grumbled. Dr. Beardsley said calmly, "'To see you, Delbert, and I don't have all night. Open your shirt.' Dr. Beardsley had hung out his shingle in Haleyville when he was twenty-two. He was seventy-two now, and there was little in his half-century of practice that he hadn't dealt with. He had learned long ago that he would be obeyed, if he expected obedience and tolerated nothing else. "'While you're about it,' the doctor said, "'roll up your sleeve.' Grumbling, Gramps did as he was told. Dr. Beardsley took his blood pressure and thrust a thermometer between Gramps's lips. When Gramps made a face, he said, "'That's a thermometer, Delbert, not a stick of peppermint.' Don't try to bite it in half. While Gramps mouthed the thermometer, Dr. Beardsley applied a stethoscope to his chest, then to his back. He removed the thermometer, and, after he read it, he washed it at the sink and dipped it in a sterile tube before putting it back in its case. "'I suppose you were hunting today?' he asked Gramps. "'You know anybody who wasn't?' Gramps said. "'I know some who shouldn't have been, and I know at least one who isn't going again until next year. His name's Delbert Bennett.' "'Blasted nonsense!' Gramps snorted. "'You doctors ever talk anything except nonsense?' "'Seldom,' Dr. Beardsley admitted cheerfully. "'But it just so happens that I'm talking sense at present.' It isn't too serious, but it will be if you don't take care. The truth is, your heart isn't as young as it used to be. With reasonable luck, it will last you another twenty years, and I fully expect you'll grow more cussed every year. But right now, it needs rest, which means that you're going to take it easy for the next six months. In addition to your regular night's sleep, Lie down for at least three hours every day. We'll see after that. I never heard so blame much foolishness, Gramps tried to roar, but he was too weak and could only blink indignantly at Dr. Beardsley. Graham said quietly but firmly, He'll do as you say, doctor. Clobber him if he doesn't. I will. Dr. Beardsley packed his stethoscope and sphygmomanometer back in his bag 
and wrote a prescription, which he handed to Graham. "'There's no emergency about this. The youngster can bring it when he comes home from school tomorrow. After that, see that he takes his medicine according to the directions that will accompany the prescription, and refill it before it runs out.' "'Medicine,' Gramps said. "'You pill peddlers can't think of anything else when you don't know what to do.' "'He'll take the medicine, doctor,' Graham promised. Dr. Beardsley said, "'I leave you in care of your boss, Delbert,' and went out into the night. That had been that. Hunting old Yellowfoot was over for the season. Gramps grumbled and growled, but he took his medicine and accepted his three hours of daily rest. Bud shouldered as many of the chores as he could. Then the school bus stopped, and as Bud trudged up the drive, he told himself sullenly that at least he was beholden to nobody, for he had paid his way. But in his heart he knew it wasn't as simple as that, and that he would gladly work as many hours a day as he could stay awake to help Graham and Gramps. For the past week the kitchen had been a heaven of tantalizing odors. Bushels of cookies and rows of fruitcakes had emerged from the great oven. Graham and Helen Carruthers had been busy from daylight until after dark. Graham was taking another tray of cookies from the oven when Bud came in, and she smiled at him. Helen Carruthers, a tall, graying woman who seldom smiled, was mixing something in a pan. She nodded at Bud and told him to help himself. Bud grabbed a handful of cookies and went to his room to change his clothes. As he went out to the barn, Shep came running to meet him, and inside he found Gramps sitting on a bale of hay. The barn had become Gramps' refuge. The old man nodded glumly. "'Dogged if I know how she does it,' Gramps said plaintively. "'I'm supposed to take that stuff Doc Beardsley gave me, and it's a wonder it don't kill a body every four hours.' So, every four hours, no matter how busy she is, Mother's right on deck with it. Pah! A man can't be himself any more. You should have your medicine, Gramps. Medicine, yes, but that ain't any medicine. Now you take sassafras root and slippery elm bark. That was medicine when they was boiled together by somebody who knew what he was doing. Gramps fell into a glum silence. Then he said, "'Anyhow, they didn't get old Yellowfoot.' "'How do you know?' "'Everybody'd know if they got a buck that big. "'He'll be waiting for us next year.' "'That's good,' Bud said with feeling. "'Ain't it?' Gramps said sourly. It'd be a heap better if next deer season wasn't such a passling ways off. I felt in my bones that this was our year to get old Yellowfoot, and we'd have had him if it hadn't been for this blasted nonsense. Oh, well, 
We'll be howling a long spell if we howl about it. Want to help me fetch the Christmas tree tomorrow? The next day they set off across the snow with Shep frolicking beside them. Bud carried an axe and a rope. Gramps led the way to a young hemlock that, because it grew in the open, was evenly formed on all sides and sloped to a nearly perfect top. Bud felled it, then hitched the rope around its trunk and slid it home across the snow. Under Gramps's direction, he sawed the chopped end off squarely and nailed a wooden standard across the trunk. Graham and Helen Carruthers took over as soon as Gramps and Bud had carried the tree into the living room and stood it in a corner. The tree had to be moved this way and that, seldom more than two inches in any direction, until Graham and Helen were finally satisfied and the top could be secured with string. Even while he was helping with the Christmas preparations, Bud felt detached. He was convinced that they were being made solely for the Bennetts' children and grandchildren, in whose eyes he would be no more than an interloper. And so Bud walked grudgingly forward when the first of the real family arrived, forcing himself not to surrender to an impulse to run. As soon as he had mumbled, "'Pleased to meet you,' he fled to the barn. By Christmas morning, the house was filled with Bennett relatives, and more would be there in time for dinner. It was still dark when Bud awakened, and he slipped quietly out of bed and into his clothes. Then, shoes in hand, he padded softly down the stairs. He wanted to escape from the house and be out with the stock. Also, Gramps needed rest, and if he were not disturbed, he would sleep late enough so that Bud could finish the chores. Otherwise, Gramps would insist on helping. Bud knew by the light seeping through the crack under the kitchen door that somebody had preceded him. It was Graham. Alan, she said, it's only half past five. She must have been up for a very long time. Now she was filling the last of a row of pies. As he watched her, Bud could not help thinking of the feast to come. Roast turkey, chicken, duck and goose, sweet and white potatoes, mince, pumpkin and apple pie, salads and cooked vegetables, cake and ice cream. But he refused to look into the dining room, where the big table had been extended to its full length, and been flanked by many small tables. There would be more than thirty at Christmas dinner, and there was room and food for all of them. Bud was just as careful to avoid the parlor where gifts were piled in little mountains beneath the tree. He thought fleetingly of the sewing kit he had put under the tree for Graham, and the book called Africa's Dangerous Game for Gramps. Without resentment, he reflected that there would be nothing for him. He put on his shoes and took his jacket and cap from the closet, and was about to go out when he saw that he was being rude to Graham. 
Even if Christmas meant nothing to him, it meant a great deal to her. And so he turned and wished her a Merry Christmas as heartily as he could. "'Why, bless you, Alan, and a very Merry Christmas to you,' she said, hugging and kissing him. Even though he had no claim on Graham, it looked as if she had not rejected him completely, and he felt a little better. He left the house and stopped on the back porch to hug Shep, whose warm, wet tongue seemed to wash away some of Bud's loneliness. Together they made their way through the snow to the stable, where the four cows, warm in their stanchions, blew softly through their nostrils and turned their gently welcoming eyes on Bud. Some farmers claimed cows were glad to see you only because you gave them food, but Bud knew better, especially on this Christmas morning. He forked hay into the mangers, measured grain into the feed boxes, and drew his stool up beside the fractious cherub. It seemed a long while ago and scarcely credible that he had once been afraid of her. Bud milked the four cows deliberately, working as slowly as possible so as to delay his return to the house in which he had become an alien. Then he fed the horses, took care of the chickens, and peered out of the barn at the winter landscape, which was gradually becoming lighter. Although he had already cleaned it once, he cleaned the cow stable again, carefully sifting anything that even remotely resembled refuse from the fresh straw he had put down, and carrying the refuse out to the litter pile behind the barn. He lingered on in the barn until he knew that if he did not return to the house, Graham or Gramps would come out to find out what had happened to him. They would want to know what was the matter, and he was determined not to spoil their happiness at Christmas by letting them know how miserable he was. As soon as he was inside the kitchen, Bud took off his work shoes and put on the pair he wore to school. It was an involuntary and almost unconscious gesture. He and Gramps always came to the table in the shoes they wore in the barn, and as long as they were clean, neither of them gave it a second thought. But now the house was full of strangers. Only Graham seemed to notice his entrance, and she came into the kitchen from the dining room where the others were and started to cook his bacon and eggs. "'Land's sake, Alan, you were a long while at the chores,' she said. Bud stayed in the kitchen with her hoping that he would be able to eat there alone. But when his breakfast was ready, she carried the plate into the dining room, and Bud set his jaw and followed. He had no sooner sat down than Gramps came in. He nodded at the table in general and then turned to Bud. "'Did you do the morning chores, young feller?' Bud said, "'Yes.' in a very small voice. "'Did you get into that little house, too?' "'Little house?' "'The one next the chicken house.' "'No.' "'You'd best kite along and get it.' 
Bud left the table, glad to get away, but burning with humiliation. The little house that Mun Mackey had hauled in with his truck had nothing in it. At least Bud thought it had nothing in it. But having been too proud to ask about it in the beginning or since, he wasn't sure now. In spite of all his precautions, he had come close to saddling Gramps with a chore that he, Bud, ought to have done without Gramps' having to ask him. Bud came to the little house and, seeing a white envelope tied with a red ribbon on the door latch, stood dumbfounded. "'Merry Christmas!' was written across the envelope, and the card inside it read, "'Merry Christmas to our boy, Bud, Allen. Graham and Gramps.' Bud opened the door and gasped. Last night, after he had gone to bed, somebody must have strewn fresh straw on the floor of the little house. There was a drinking fountain, a mash hopper, a grain feeder, and a container for oyster shell. A regal young cockerel strutted around six pure white pullets. Bud entered the little house and pulled the door shut behind him latching it so no one could intrude on this wonderful moment. His heart seemed to be beating in his throat, and tears had sprung to his eyes. Now, for the first time in his life, he knew what Christmas could mean. He caught up the cockerel and, as he stroked it, looked around at the pullets and thought of the flock they would become. Bud was sure he had always wanted white Wyandots like these. End of chapter 7 Recording by Roger Moline